Welcome back to eConversations with Nave. Today's episode is a webinar replay from the June 6th webinar addressing what's in store for the European banking sector. Following the turmoil in the US and the rust merger of Credit Suisse and UBS, there's been some concern about the health of the European banking sector. While on the surface, the regulatory regime in Europe may have been stricter to protect the banking sector, this discussion will look at how resilient the sector is and what the authorities should be looking to do in order to protect the sector and the wider economy. The session is moderated by NAVE International Roundtable co-chair and chief economist of KPMG in the UK, Yael Selfin. Yael, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Kathleen, and hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to another session with NABE. Today we have um, a really exciting topic that is probably of still interest to quite a few of you looking at the banking sector in Europe following quite a lot of um, relative um, interesting periods, not just in the US, but also here in Europe. So. With me, I have two excellent speakers to discuss the latest uh, for this sector. We have Bill Cohen, who is the former Secretary General of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. And we also have Philip Davis, who is a Professor of Banking and Finance at Brunel University. So we're going to start with a few overview uh, comments from both of them. We'll start with Philip. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, um, I've been kind of looking into financial instability and debt ever since I was at the BIS uh, on secondment from the Bank of England in the mid-1980s. And I just wanted to share with you a couple of insights that I think might be helpful. Um, so one thing it seems to me is that a problem very often in uh, thinking about financial crises, risk, macroprudential surveillance, if you like, is that you tend to fight the last war and uh, the crisis is expected to resemble the last one. And uh, I'm just going to show you a slide, uh, just one slide, um, which will try and show something a little bit different. It's what I call the generic features of financial crises. And it's uh, drawn really from the literature on financial crisis, Minsky, Kindleberger, et cetera, um, but also analysis of crises, which uh, I put forward first in a book in the mid nineties called Debt Financial Fragility and Systemic Risk. Um, and uh, my own contribution, if you like, is to try and synthesize the, uh, theories uh, in the light of experience and uh, perhaps orig the original bit that I uh, added to some extent was the work on uh, new entry and the industrial dynamics of financial crises. Um, and this is the broad list that we have on the left-hand column here um, that it often starts a process of having a crisis begins with the regime shift to laxity or another favorable shock. The, pros, the boom then under, gets underway with new entry, debt accumulation, asset price booms, financial innovation. Um, we find as think time goes by, we get underpricing of risk, risk concentration, lower capital adequacy for banks. And then something nasty happens, what I call here regime shift to rigor, uh, which may be because of the previous policy being unsustainable, another adverse shock 
And then the crisis itself is the two at the bottom, the rationing of credit and the operation of the safety net or a severe economic crisis. As I say, I wrote this up in the mid 90s originally, thinking about things like Japan, Scandinavia, Australia, etc. lots of events uh, before that. But if you look at the middle column, you'll find it fits pretty well. Um, some features of the subprime crisis, the uh, easy liquidity in the early 90s, early 2000s, the new entry, hedge funds, special purpose vehicles, etc., households accumulating debt, asset booms in housing and equities, the innovations of securitization, CDOs, and so on. We found there were low leverage ratios and underestimation of risk by the rating agencies. And then the adverse shock is to some extent the tightening of monetary policy, leading on, of course, to the uh, wholesale market uh, crunch, credit crunch, if you like, and big need for rescue. And then the interesting point is thinking about these generic features today. Um, and to my mind, the QE since uh, quantitative easing uh, since 2009 is a, obviously a regime shift to laxity. And I know that the BIS warned about it right up the start. Claudio Borio or the colleagues there said, this is pretty risky, isn't it? And that was back in 2009, 2010. We've got the shadow banks growing. We've got a lot of corporate debt, um, the usual culprits in terms of asset prices. Innovations, obviously crypto, but also I think the role of social media that I'm sure we'll discuss here. Specific perhaps to the actual events we've seen under pricing of risk, et cetera, and concentration is the depositor concentration in the various US and Swiss events and US bank losses on treasuries. But then the adverse shock is of course what we're undergoing now, the inflation, the monetary tightening and quantitative tightening. We've seen depositor runs, we've seen forced mergers and the response of enhanced deposit insurance. But if you like, those things are in italics because we don't know what else is gonna happen, which is what we're gonna to discuss today. Just one other point before I hand back. Uh, I think there's also a risk of not learning from history. As I say, don't learn from the last crisis necessarily, but there may be something in economic history that can help us think about things. Um, to my mind, the S uh, Silicon Valley Bank crisis had some features in line with the uh, initial US thrifts crisis in the late 1970s in that they had a lot of fixed rate assets that were devaluing disintermediation, uh, money market funds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's the initial element, not the risk taking that occurred afterwards. So let me stop that and I'll stop the uh, share. Thank you, Philip. And and let's let's get Bill to have his initial remarks as well before we move on to the questions. Okay. Thank you very much, Yale, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to participate in this um, in this webinar. Um, I have um, I have a particular interest in European banks, uh, given my my twenty plus years living in Switzerland, living on the continent, um, and most of that time. Um, it was uh, dealing or uh, developing the Basel III framework and, and other post-global uh, financial crisis um, remedial measures. And so I think just, uh, of course, the proximity to European banks headquarters, uh, a lot of the uh, <clears throat> a lot of the trade associations spent an enormous amount of time talking about Basel III, 
defending Basel III, explaining what we're trying to achieve. Um, and so I, I really had the good fortune of, and that was part of my job, really, to explain Basel III and to, and really to listen to, to the banks, to politicians, um, independent um, um, parties. <clears throat> and it was uh, extremely educational. I, I hope it was <laughs> equally educational to those who, uh, who had to listen to me. Um, but uh, again, as um, because of the, um, um, you know, the phase, the development phase of Basel III and, and where I was situated, uh, I really had quite a bit of opportunity to talk about Basel III. Um, Philip said something important a moment ago that, uh, you know, there's always this sense that, um, you know, after a crisis, trying to, um, particularly for standard setters and policymakers, trying to fight the last war, uh, that came up quite often. Uh, I think, and, and I'm going to focus a little bit on Basel III, but that's not really the, the sole thrust of my comments uh, during the rest of today's webinar. Um, that was something we were very sensitive to, fighting the last battle. Yeah, we, you know, we, in many senses, closed the barn door after the horse got out, but things like um, better quality capital, higher levels of capital, um, more liquidity, bet, better funding um, and risk management, that's, that's not really fighting the last war. That's, that, no. that's trying to, um, that's trying to, uh, position the uh, the industry and financial systems um, better for the next inevitable crisis. And we know there's gonna be um, uh, another crisis. Um, the BIS and IMF research, I, I, I looked at some, some of the data roughly every seven years. That's what we, that's what we figured. R roughly seven, eight years is gonna be a crisis somewhere in the world. Um, and maybe it's even going to be global, um, but again, what we were trying to do is to better um, position the industry, individual banks and banking systems. Um, so what we're gonna to discuss today, European banks, um, in some respects, I will be critical um, of um, European banks and also the policymakers um, for maybe not uh, adopting Basel III um, as one would hope, or at least in the timeframe in which it uh, was expected. Um, but one last thing, Yale. I think it's I think it's very dangerous for people to say, well, um, we've got all these these new regulations in place uh, that took more than a decade to to develop. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of reasons for that. I'm I'm always happy to discuss why it took so long. But um, the danger is it's a dangerous way of thinking that okay, got these new regulations. And surely the system now is bulletproof. That, that that's uh, it's absurd. Um, regulations, good regu regulations um, that are well informed, that are based on data. Um, that's important. Enforcement is important, and by that I mean implementation, adoption, particularly consistent implementation and adoption around the world. Um, and then maybe more important, well certainly more important than good supervision. And, and good regulation is effective governance and risk management. So it's, it's a complicated picture. It's not just about regulation. Um, but I, I, will, <clears throat> I will touch on some of these uh, comments, some of these uh, dimensions during our, our, our discussion um, during the, uh, this next hour. Back to you, Yale. Thank you, Bill. 
So I want you to start by going back to a bit earlier this year, we had some turmoil, I would describe it as such, in the banking system in, in the US. But we've also had um, Credit Suisse in, in, in Switzerland and the, and the problems there. And I wanted to get your views as how related you think <clears throat> the, the, the events in Switzerland were to what we saw, we, we saw in, in the US. Is this all part of the same thing? Is it all part, Philip, from, for, with, of, of what you were describing as what we should expect when you have a banking crisis? Hmm. Who wants, do you want to start, Bill? Um, yeah, I will, uh, Phil, thank you. I, uh, yeah, I, I think they're definitely related. Investors were, were leery of bank fragility and Credit Suisse, well, they've, they've had a, a long history of um, some risk management and some governance missteps, I think of, well, and also poor performance um, given the several consecutive quarters of losses. But you think about Orgegos, Greensill, uh, a spying scandal of former employees, the, uh, the former CEO misusing corporate assets and flouting some COVID-related rules. <clears throat> I, I think, you know, there was there was such heightened sensitivity to um, um, that general that originated in the U.S. with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and I think investors were were just uh, ultra sensitive to fragility. And uh, I think Credit Suisse had, um, you know, had had those fragilities. So, um, yeah, it's hard to compare a, a global systemically important bank to a couple, a handful of regional banks in the U.S. But I, I, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that they're they're highly correlated. Mm. Yeah, I guess some features are in common um, that some people, at least, would argue. We've seen a lot of discussion about depositor concentration in the case of the American banks that we had the tech entrepreneurs who were very well coordinated and discussed with each other. They had big deposits that weren't uh, insured. And uh, some people have argued, at least, I think, that although Credit Suisse obviously had a much wider clientele, that its large wealth management, wealth management clients may have been, uh, you know, the, the spark that led to the other invest other depositors uh, running. So there is a possible issue there with depositor concentration. Um, obviously, we've got the macro background as well, um, in the sense that you know the long period that we are all aware of that I mentioned to some extent, the low interest rates, et cetera, uh, generating what you can argue is disaster myopia in the case of both the American banks and Credit Suisse with some of these ventures that Bill has uh, has mentioned that went uh, badly wrong. Um, on the other hand, I suppose there are unique features of Credit Suisse making it vulnerable. Some of these uh, events that, that happened weren't typical of the American banks. They sort of made one mistake, it seems, uh, in respect of uh, government bonds um, that devalued. Um, and that uh, led to unrealized losses uh, due to, I presume, to problems in accounting and uh, supervision. I'm sure you can say a lot more about that than I can. Um, so those features weren't present in the case of, uh, of Credit Suisse. Um, it's also argued that the fall in share prices in Europe was partly some kind of 
general general factor of profit taking and recession prospects um, as much as uh, as panic. Some people have argued that. I mean, I'm I'm pretty much with Bill, I think, on that. But it has been made the case. And of course, the European banks, including Credit Suisse, didn't have these unrealized losses on securities. Um, the uh, the run came from other factors, but uh, yeah, there are arguments both ways. I think we can agree. Good. I'm glad you are agreeing. So I have another question, a little bit more complicated now, and that is: Can you see another? Uh, incident in Europe similar to what we saw in Switzerland. Do you think that it is likely that we'll see another, especially a large um, financial institution under similar difficulties? Mm. Shall I oh, kick off, maybe? Um, I mean, there are clearly some unique features of Credit Suisse that weren't present, aren't present in other European banks. The stuff like the uh, the Saudi National Bank, wasn't it? They didn't want to inject uh, liquidity. Um, it's a question of who your shareholders are. And also the, the sorts of issues that have been mentioned, senior management changes, legal problems, significant losses. Um, so those make CS somewhat unique. But on the other hand, um, there is a warning that one could argue that um, it's an issue of a large bank in a small country being forced to take over the failing one. And some people point to the credit Anstalt in the early 1930s um, when that was failing and it was it in effect was forced to be taken over and that precipitated the banking crisis that led to a lot of horrors uh, or contributed to a lot of horrors in Europe in the early 30s. Um, I mean, a worrying thing it seems is that Credit Suisse was a bank that met Although it made losses, it met the re regulatory criteria. You'll be able to say, I'm sure, a lot more on that. But my understanding is that it wasn't that bad in terms of the Basel III regulations. Um, so some have argued, well, blimey, if a bank that meets the regulatory requirements can go bust, then that should be true of any bank. Um, as we mentioned, the interest rate risk wasn't there in a particular form like uh, SVB. Uh, and um, yeah, the precedent of the equity holders not being wiped out is not very helpful, I think, in the Credit Suisse. Um, that may worry the bondholders elsewhere and uh, the other EU authorities need to really uh, convince the markets that uh, they're not going to play games uh, quite in the way that seems to have happened where some of the equity holders were let off for Credit Suisse. So, yeah. Um, yeah, your your um your your question was, do we do we believe that <clears throat> kind of failure that we saw in Switzerland is this possible somewhere uh, else in Europe? And um, as a as a former um, bank regulator, uh, central banker, um, yeah, my obvious answer is of course you never say never. Uh, yes, of course it's possible. We used to spend a lot of time uh, in Basel. I, I chaired a group. Called the policy development group that um, was pretty much the all, all the technical work um, for capital and liquidity and risk management. And we would, um, my staff and I would sit around thinking, okay, here's this was the preponderance of factors that led to the global financial crisis. What would be 
another set of factors that could that could um, you know spark uh, the next kind of crisis or a a, a large bank uh, like a G Sib um, to uh, to go into water. And uh, it's it's always you know it, it's always um, the confluence of several events. Um, you know the GFC, the global financial crisis. Uh, there are accounting weaknesses, certainly regulatory weaknesses, supervisory weaknesses, risk management, governance. You know, um, so I would never be in a position to say no, no. Um, the the European banking system or the U.S. banking system or any banking system is bulletproof, is completely safe, just because they've got a certain set of regulations in place. Um, again, uh, going back to what I said about Credit Suisse, investors and, and certainly short sellers, they look for fragility and weaknesses, real or perceived. And um, you know, when you've got this collection, this confluence of, of events that come together, um, well, it, it's really hard to, to um, assess what's going to happen. Um, let me pick up on a couple points um, Philip made, um, you know, the, the important thing about events as um, that we witnessed in these last couple of months, it's uh, how you learn from them, right? Um, there, there are some remarkable lessons in communication or poor communication. Philip mentioned the Saudi National Bank and the chairman saying under no circumstances would they, uh, would they invest uh, more. I, I, I suspect part of that was, a, it was certainly a miscommunication because I um, I know the bank a little bit. Uh, I know some members of the board. I you know maybe I'm um, I'm too charitable, but I, I think what he was really alluding to was they would have they would have gone beyond statutory limits, which would require um, um, supervisor regulatory approval, and just be, because of that, they wouldn't be willing to invest more. He he went a little bit too far, and it's notable that he, uh, he's no longer uh, chair of, of that institution. That, that was a, a terrible miscommunication. The other thing, um, <laughs> when I, um, I listened to the earnings call of Silicon Valley Bank and the CEO said, <clears throat> now this is, this is a time where everyone has to remain calm. And of course, when somebody says that, what's the first thing you do? You panic. <laughs> so mm -hmm. why is he feeling necessary to say that? So anyway, these communication issues. Um, or, or were were really not well uh, were not well handled. One other thing, um, Credit Suisse, uh, uh, forgive me, um, the Swiss National Bank and Finma, the supervisory authority in Switzerland, they were very careful to say, yes, Credit Suisse met the um, the statutory um, minimum requirements. Just and that's exactly what Basel is. Their minimum requirements. It doesn't, it by no means um, should be interpreted that a bank, uh, again, is, is, is um, ironclad and, and bulletproof just because it meets, you know, a, a lowly leverage ratio of uh, Credit Suisse, uh, their leverage ratio is probably around um, in the fours, close to 5%. For, for a firm like that, that's, uh, that's not sufficient. Um, and a, a number of other um, regulatory parameters they were close to the bottom, but that does not mean that it's it's um, you know that's the right number. It just means that they exceed the minimum. So mm. um, Northern yeah. Rock, I think, was another example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, absolutely. So just looking at the regulatory framework and the way it's applied in Europe and, and the US, there's, there's been a lot of commentary saying that this is one of the reasons why it is less we're less likely to see. 
a major crisis, banking crisis here in Europe compared to the US. Maybe you want to comment a little bit on that, whether that's that's something we can rely on here? I think you're uh, the expert there, Bill. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd love to answer that question. Yeah, do I, do I infer correctly that you, um, you mean to say that the, um, the regulatory regime is tougher in Europe than in the US? No, I'm just saying that it is applied a little bit more strictly, potentially. There's been a bit more mm. compliance, maybe. I, don't, I, no? think, I think that's a, a well, um, I, I don't mean to be provocative, but, I'm, but I will be. I, I think that's a, a, a myth um, in, in many respects. Um, yeah, you could say that uh, you know SVB in Silicon Valley. I mean, glaring examples. They they weren't subject to to Basel requirements. Um, the U.S. had made has made the conscious decision to apply Basel to just the the eight um, largest banks, the the global systemically important banks, um, and held the other banks to a slightly um, lower level, um, uh, less rigid uh, regulatory regime. Um, the, the European Union, to its credit, it, um, in its desire to have a single rule book, it applies Basel across um, all of its financial institutions. Um, in many respects, and I used to hear this quite often when, when I'd speak with uh, banks and trade associations, politicians, in many respects, that single rule book is, is trying, it's, it's, it's sort of a, you know, trying to fit a square peg in a round hole because a lot of the a lot of the provisions of Basel III really were designed with um, large international bank, internationally active banks in mind. Um, and it's not really intended for savings institutions, um, credit unions like that. But the one, one area, yeah, and, and this, this remains to be seen. Um, I, you know, it used to drive me crazy that there are all these <clears throat> comparisons between Europe and the US. And you know, I was I I was in Switzerland long enough that I, I was well, I was neutral because I was the Secretary General, and I had to you know I I, I certainly was not showing favoritism, but I, I would look at the data and I'd look at uh, all the data for EU, US, <clears throat> excuse me, and the rest of the world. In most respects, Europe did not fare well: profitability, operational efficiency, asset quality, loan loss provisioning. Um, the one area, and this is my point, the one area where the European Union, um, I guess, is the leader is in its use of models for regulatory capital purposes. And I, I don't, I'm not so sure that that's an area you, in which one wants to be a leader. Um, it remains to be seen, you know, an important part of Basel III was um, the limitations on the benefits derived from the use of models or internal estimates for regulatory capital purposes. That famous, uh, it's a floor of 72.5% comes into effect in a couple of years. Uh, I think it'll probably be delayed in the European Union. Um, that, that floor is going to be, I think, particularly binding for European banks. Um, I, you know, the banking system has undoubtedly improved in, in, in many, many respects. European banking system, banking systems all over the world, higher capital, better, uh, quality capital, liquidity funding, so on and so forth. But it's the use of models um, is, is one area uh, and the lack of consistency in risk-weighted assets is one area that concerns me. 
And, and I think that's going to be, that's, that remains to be seen once the, the floor is fully phased in. Well, and sadly, it's several years from now. So um, yeah, I'll leave it at that, but that's something I, I, I watch very carefully. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a few points which I picked up and I'd be interested to know if you would contradict them uh, from your greater knowledge. Um, it, did, it did seem to me that there's this gap in the US for me medium-sized institutions and that if SVB had been regulated in Europe, they might have marked to market these bonds rather than letting them be... Uh, uh, on the book at full value. Um, so that's, if you like, a question. I understand furthermore that European banks do hold somewhat less bonds than uh, US ones, about 15% compared with 25, according to the IMF. Um, and they may be hedged as well, um, perhaps more often. There's a point that counterparty exposures might be more often collateralized in Europe. And also, the it, these are financial structure points as much as regulatory, I agree. Um, if the money market isn't the money market mutual funds as a disintermediation uh, mechanism, perhaps a lot more developed in the US. I mean, people in England, I, it's not my impression that you would rush to a money market mutual fund like you would in the US, because you see that you can get a higher interest rate. Um, that would be a difference, but I, I agree it's a structural point as much as a regulatory one. Um, and yeah, again, this is a and again a structural point, but I think it's an interesting one that you know, for both we've got the internet, social media point that uh, seems to have underlay both of these uh, crises or all of these crises, which is a new <laughs> field that regulators and banks need to cope with. Yeah. Um, so I no, I kind of respond to that. You're, you're, you're right, Phil. Um, SVB and Silicon Valley Bank they they carried um, you know they had these unrealized losses that uh, the big banks, the eight or nine large banks in the U.S. did not have um, were, were not able not allowed to They're make, that, to, to, to make to that exemption. Yeah. They had to mark yeah, to market. This is a yeah clearly a a. a um, well, it was a conscious decision on the Federal Reserve's part to to uh, allow that exemption for you know for, for that mid tier of banks. Uh, in hindsight, it was you know a, a terrible mistake, but that's more you know that's a policy call. Um, as it turns out, it was not a good one. Um, I, I think the real action is in supervision. Now, this is kind of hard to quantify and kind of mm -hmm. hard to say. Well, something like that would be picked up. Um, by European supervisors, either at the national level or, uh, you know, in Frankfurt, uh, the, the single supervisory mechanism. But um, without a doubt, th this was a catastrophic supervisory failure. Uh, I, I don't think there's any other way to, of looking at it. Um, one last point. So I, I do agree that there were there are some structural issues, um, some some policy calls that probably in in uh, you know the sober light of day. Would not have been um, been made. Um, but I, I also remember, um, you know, it goes back to this question of the scope of application. Which to which banks do you want to apply the rules? And I remember um, one of the um, provisions of Basel III, one of the standards within the Basel III framework that really had gone unnoticed. Uh, didn't get a lot of fanfare, mainly because 
it didn't have a direct pillar one capital implication. That was interest rate risk in the banking book. Um, I, I remember the US, um, you know, we were talking about risk management capabilities and the US view was, you know, the, the largest banks in the US, they do a really good job at modeling interest rate risk, uh, mitigating that risk through, um, you know, through some kind of uh, risk mitigation strategies. Um, it's really this next tier of banks below the the the, the, uh, the large ones that um, that give us a bit of concern, um, and well, they were right as it turned out to be. But uh, again, I you know I, I, there are clearly some some regulatory some some policy differences between the jurisdictions. I think supervision in the in the EU, EU is, is actually very good, even though for a young organization. Um, you know, it takes some time to find, you know, to, to, uh, uh, to find your niche, so to speak, and to, to become established. The SSM uh, really has done that. They, they've got uh, tremendous capabilities. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, yeah, the bottom line um, is I, I don't think it's, um, I wouldn't be comfortable saying well, something like like uh, what happened in the U.S. it could never happen in in Europe. Uh, there are just too many variables involved, and I named a few: policies slash regulation, supervision, and of course, risk management and governance. Yeah, absolutely. So, just looking at Europe a little bit more. I mean, we've gone a long way since the uh, great financial crisis. Um, we've had significant consolidation in the banking sector in Europe across many of the, the countries. Um, so it will be interesting to see how you observe the, how the European banking system has evolved since and whether we've reached a point that is, is ideal or whether we still need to do more, whether there's still some vulnerabilities, where you see these vulnerabilities, potential vulnerabilities in the European banking system, how would you like it to evolve further? Where, where are the missing bits that we still need to, to try and get sorted? Mm. Cool. Is that like, yeah, why don't you start, Bill? Okay, um, well, yeah, I, I remember well the, um, the many discussions, uh, and this is, you know, discussions that have been ongoing for more than a decade about Capital Markets Union, CMU. Um, there hasn't been the kind of progress that I think a lot of um, legislators, um, market participants, certainly, uh, analysts, investors, there hasn't been the kind of progress that one would hope uh, when it comes to um, CMU. Um, I used to hear, I used to hear quite often that, you know, the, the standards that, um, you know, the post GFC standards that are being developed, well, they're, they're way too harsh on um, the European financial system because it's so heavily reliant on banks. And my bank, my response would be, well, if your system is that reliant on banks, why wouldn't you want, uh, you know, ultra, you know, uh, strong, robust rules for the banks to make the system safer? But that's, that's, you know, that's another story. Um, I used to hear quite often that banks in the European Union provide roughly 70% of uh, 
financing of the real economy and 30% um, provided by others, while in the US it's um, the inverse. Um, capital markets, non-bank financial institutions and, and uh, uh, capital market activities account for 70% of financing of the real economy and banks provide the other 30%. Um, so I, I think this, this heavily, heavy reliance on banks continues. Um, the other, the other thing that I would have hoped to have seen a little bit more progress on is uh, deposit insurance. Um, as we've seen with, you know, the, the recent stress in the U.S., this isn't, um, this doesn't uh, make a, a banking system um, bulletproof. There's a lot, quite a bit of debate going on now. Should the, um, should that coverage level increase from the current level of 250,000, maybe a million is a better number, maybe two million is. Uh, I know there's some discussion going on about having it's sort of like the um, what's been what's done in Japan, uh, these so-called uh, zero interest business accounts, zero interest transaction accounts have unlimited uh, insurance coverage. Maybe that's something that could be adopted in the U.S. Again, that's that's one element of of many within a financial system, but I I do think. Um, um, broader uniform deposit insurance uh, in Europe would um, would be to its uh, uh, certainly to its benefit. And one one final thing, um, and Yale, you mentioned consolidation in um, in the banking industry. Um, I remember a conversation I had with colleagues from the uh, the Bundesbank, and I said something. Um, I rashly said, "Well." You know, Germany is so overbanked, and there was they, they visibly winced, like, oh no, 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 it's it's a competitive market. Don't don't say it's overbanked. It's just very it's highly competitive. <laughs> Call what you want, but it's it, it is it is highly competitive, and um, there has been some consolidation. I think if you were to ask um, ECB and, and and other participants in the European Union um, financial system, uh, I, I think they would. Um, I'm quite confident they'd say, yeah, there's been some progress when it comes to consolidation, but um, a lot more needs to be done. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, just following on that point, I've read that um, mergers in Europe may be held back by the need to realize losses on fixed rate corporate bond loans, government debt and mortgages, which uh, I read may hold back mergers by two years compared with when they happen. And I would echo the point about Europe still being overbanked uh, and that's true in a number of countries and some specific ones. Um, so that is a concern. I guess we're, we're talking about current vulnerabilities as well as development since the crisis, aren't we? Mainly the latter, perhaps. I mean, the thing that makes my hair stand on end because it came up so many times in the past is commercial property. Um, obviously, we've got these structural shifts, the shift from uh, working from home, like I am, uh, high leverage, rising short and long interest rates, all those things, uh, in like high leverage in commercial property, that is. Um, Citibank have said that European commercial property prices might fall 40% by the end of next year. Um, and uh, in Europe, I gather they use comparative transactions to value commercial property rather than some kind of estimate of what the whole thing is worth. And they may, they may, of course, have the comparable transactions may have been a diff, in a different environment. Um, obviously, we're seeing tighter credit, and that could lead to forced sales. We've seen HSBC in the US, admittedly, 
selling viable com commercial property loans at a discount in anticipation of trouble. So, um, I mean, that's a dog that's barked a lot of times. It barked to a lesser extent, although it not at all. It did to some extent in the subprime, of course. I think it was helper helpful in a negative way in the loss of the uh, UK banks um, like HBOS uh, commercial property, although most analysis of the subprime has been to do with securitization of household mortgages. But uh, that's, uh, that's something that's a problem, I think, in Europe as well as the US. And we've got corporate debt as well, and that links to the points you've been making about traditional European financial structure that uh, the traditional levels of European leverage are a lot higher than in the United States uh, because of relationship banking, et cetera, in the past. I gather that's still a feature to some extent. And um, the question is, are those levels of leverage viable in a recession? And particularly an X factor could be that private equity has got a lot to play uh, in, um, in some of the leverage buyouts that have occurred. Then there are the features that have been highlighted by the Credit Suisse. We talk, I mentioned about the, uh, the fact that the equity were allowed out while the bondholders were wiped out. Um, and particularly that the COCOs, um, the COCO holders were quite aggrieved from what I understand. You might want to comment on that. Um, and that could, in, could raise the cost of capital and make it much harder to issue uh, COCOs in the future. The resolution procedures in uh, Basel III didn't seem to be adopted properly in the Credit Suisse case, from what I understand. So that's maybe a feature that needs to be dealt with uh, in Europe as well. Um, yeah, the net interest margin, just a point on that. Um, generally, the net interest margin, people say, oh, yes, that's, that's going to ride to the rescue because the banks will get a higher margin when the interest rates rise. I think what one finds, I did some, I'm doing some econometrics in that area at the moment, is that although that's true in the long term, the short term effect of a rising interest rate may well be to narrow the margin. So again, that's just some, a, an element of potential fragility. And we've got, of course, the wage price spiral in the UK particular, but concerns elsewhere that leads to further monetary tightening. So yeah. yeah. There are still some signals flashing red, both uh, conjunctural, structural, and regulatory. I think. Yeah, can I can I just pick up on um, one or two things that Philip um, mentioned mm -hmm. on the cocos? Uh, Philip, I'm glad you brought that up. It, it came up earlier uh, when we were talking about Credit Suisse, but um, more broadly, so yeah, the recovery and resolution um, principles did not work. Um, as planned, um, you know, for for global systemically important banks, you know they all have their living wills, their recovery and resolution plans. Um, an enormous amount of work has gone on, particularly at the firm level, but also the interaction with um, uh, supervisor, the central bank, the resolution authorities, um, if there if there are any in a country, and a lot of this is is happening uh, on a cross border basis. So you know the twenty now there are twenty nine uh, G SIBs. There, there's quite a bit of interaction um, um, outside the country where th that G SIB might be headquartered. Yet um, things 
did, they did not go according to plan. There, there was a rule book, un, it was untested. Uh, there was another rule book, how to handle crises and failing um, banks that um, was revised if, from the global financial crisis. That's the rule book that was used in uh, Credit Suisse's case. Uh, I, I thought it was very helpful though, that the ECB um, and the Bank of England um, very quickly came out with a statement to say, you know, um, we, this does not diminish our support of, uh, you know, the, the convertible bonds, the cocos, um, that, you know, what happened in Switzerland was a sort of an idiosyncratic case. Mm. Uh, well, they, they, they didn't, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't um, respect the hierarchy, but, you know, they also said, um, it, it said very clearly in the bonds and, and you know, that this, this, this could be, uh, this could happen. So, um, here, Here's my point. Um, everything that's happened in the last couple of months, both with COCOs, um, with interest rate risk and the uh, banking book and its management with liquidity, all of this, um, you know, the Basel Committee, and in the case of the Recovery and Resolution Regime, that's the Financial Stability Board. Um, there's a, a lot of evaluation going on because we, we knew or we suspected we knew how things would work um, in a theoretical sense. Um, but, the, but you know, these things are untested. And well, now there's some re real world evidence, particularly, you know, for the Basel Committee, I know they're, they're meeting next week and uh, there's a topic on the agenda that will discuss what have we learned uh, from this and, and how do we react? And we, we said that all along that once there's Clear evidence, or at least there's anecdotal evidence and, and, and some, some data to support the experience. Um, because all these, many of these principles, principles are new, let's, we will evaluate them. The Basel Committee will evaluate them. Um, our changes, will, will changes need to be made? Um, and if so, you know, um, they'll go through that um, process of, of proposing changes if necessary. Uh, and, and um, working it in, into the framework. But um, I, I think there, yeah, there, there were a number of issues learned, particularly for COCOs uh, and interest rate risk management. Brilliant. I suppose SVB wouldn't have had a resolution, uh, a living will, because it was too small. Um, right, but there are different gradations. It's not, it, it wasn't a, um, uh, black and white. So I think a firm that size, they um, they, they probably had a. I'm sure they had a resolution plan, but it, it wouldn't have been developed to the same sense of rigor that a uh, you know J.P. Morgan or a City or Wells Fargo would require. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, again, and, and Philip, you 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 know you picked up on this point. A, um, a lot of this was you know the speed with which deposits flew out of the bank. Um, it. <laughs> How do you, so I, I know that's something else in the US, this is under consideration. How do you deal with that kind of a bank run? Um, mm. Yeah, deposit insurance could help in many respects. I talked about these transaction accounts, uh, zero in interest um, transaction accounts that, uh, for businesses and having unlimited coverage for those, that might prevent a run, but there's, there's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of evaluation that's, that's taking place now. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, thank you, thank you for that. So just building on what you were saying, 
we are expecting the economic outlook to remain relatively um, volatile and weak, and we're expecting rates to remain relatively high. So there's still quite a lot of headwinds um, around, and you've you've already started alluding to what would need to be done to make the banking system um, safer potentially and and prepare us for a continuation of of a period will inevitably have some challenges. So um, maybe you can talk a little bit more about the, the changes that authorities can make in order to avoid a crisis in Europe. You both already mentioned, Bill, a little bit the importance of this supervisory part, but maybe also talking about monetary policy. You mentioned a little bit monetary policy already. Um, so this is for both you and um, both of you. On the regulatory environment, supervisory, monetary policy, what, what would you like to see as a changes that will make that short term, because we, we always look at short term anyway, you know, the next few years because things change all the time. What would you like to see implemented to try and make safeguard the, the system? Can I say, say a few words to, uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the European Central Bank has a good record in terms of providing liquidity and one will want it to carry on doing that. Um, we talked about, I think uh, Bill talked about deposit insurance and uh, from what I understand, the euro-wide element of that has not been introduced yet and that would make the system stronger than it is at the moment. Um, in terms of deposit insurance, I think the authorities still need to remember that blanket coverage can generate moral hazards. So there's always a, an element, a trick, something to, to judge in, in that respect. Um, I guess there's dollar liquidity, that's very important. And the Fed and the European Central Bank, et cetera, are well cooperating in that as they have done since the subprime. And it's important that should continue. Um, just one thing that hasn't been mentioned and which we all, everyone talked about so much before is macro prudential policy. Um, and the question is, well, do we forget about macro prudential policy in the current situation or what should we be doing <clears throat> in respect of it? I mean, the last thing that it did, I guess, was at the start of the subprime, the uh, COVID, when it was eased quite considerably. But I wonder what your thoughts on that, Bill, are that whether macroprudential policy has any uh, role to play, particularly in the context that we have monetary tightening, should could it somehow alleviate some elements of, uh, of financial stability risk that are occurring, or should it be remain tight because we want to keep risks under control? Thank you, um, thank you, Philip. I will come back to that. You know, on the question, what what needs to be done, um, and, and thank you for for phrasing it <laughs> um, from a regulatory perspective and a supervisory perspective, because really that that's how I, I I see things. From a regulatory perspective, clear and simple: um, don't dilute Basel three. Put it mm, in place. Agreed. Implement it and implement it as soon as possible. Um, the the what they propose on the table. Uh, I don't think it's changed, but if it may have, um, the proposal would would have the this, this cap um, of the floor on um, this famous seventy two and a half percent floor. Simply, what that means is that uh, a, a bank's modeled 
regulatory capital can't be cannot be lower than um, 72 and a half percent of what the standardized, the non-modeled approach would be. So it still, you know, gives a bank a 27 and a half percent, very large uh, benefit. Um, the one provision that was proposed by the Euro European Commission was that um, that that all important floor, and it, it really is important to the uh, to the European banks. Of course, they, as I mentioned earlier, they use models uh, to an extent greater than most other jurisdictions, all other jurisdictions. Um, this wouldn't be, would not be fully phased in until 2032. I mean, 25 years, 25 years after the global financial crisis. That, I don't know, that, that, um, yeah, two more before that. <laughs> it's just not credible. It, it's, uh, um, it, it's not only um, not credible, it's, it's regrettable, I think. So I, I do think it's important to, uh, to put the Basel framework in place. It's going to be difficult for some banks, but um, you know that's um, it, it's going to be difficult. But you really you've got to move beyond. It. You've got to get that in place. The other thing, supervision. Um, I could tell you, and I've spoken with um, lots of supervisors around the world, including the ones in the U.S. Um, there is a, a certain sense. I wouldn't call it Schadenfreude, but it is certainly a sense that. You know, we as a, not the Fed, we as a supervisor, boy, are we glad that wasn't us because the, the Federal Reserve uh, has taken a, a, a tremendous black eye because of their handling of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, well-deserved, I'm sorry to say. And I, and I say that as a former Federal Reserve um, staff member for many years. Um, so what's the result of that, both in the United States? And I am highly confident all over the world, the supervisory regime is going to get tougher. Philip uh, had a very interesting, uh, in his opening remarks, he talked about the, you know, how the pendulum swings uh, in many respects. And that's certainly true of supervision. And I could say with certainty that that pendulum is going to, is going to swing to the more rigorous, um, onerous side when it comes to supervision. Mm -hmm. Finally, on macro prudential policy, this is, I put this in the category, Philip, of, you know, this is one of the things, you know, the countercyclical capital buffer, for instance, especially um, that, yeah, the CCYB um, on, you know, from an academic, from a theoretical sense, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, banks build their capital buffers in good times. They could draw them down in less good times um, and uh, avoid any kind of regulatory pro-cyclicality. Um, I, I think it's, um, I, I think the experience so far has been very good. I, I know the the level of debate, internal debate at central banks um, and supervisory authorities as to whether or not to invoke uh, the CCYB is um, is quite um, quite rigorous. Um, and so, I I again I, I think this is an opportunity um, because of where we are in, in um, the economic cycle. I think it's an opportunity for central banks to assess um, how to use the, the CCYB. Uh, I haven't heard anything coming out of Basel about um, what the latest signals are um, for, for different jurisdictions. But I know this is something that uh, all the central banks that are part of the Basel Committee and beyond, this is something that uh, they're, they're paying close attention to. Thank you. Well, that's great. Um, we're just running out of time. So I just really wanted to close on this, end on this relatively optimistic note, which I think is relatively optimistic given everything else. And thank you both um, Philippe and Bill for this very insightful hour.
talking about um, the European uh, banking um, environment. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of eConversations with Neeb. We hope you'll join us for the 20th annual Neeb Foundation Economic Measurement Seminar, July 17th and 18th at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Economic Measurement Seminar provides a unique opportunity to learn about federal agency data directly from the producers of the data. Pairing the data producer with a data user, the seminar provides a comprehensive picture of the importance and different uses of economic measurement today. If you've previously attended, we encourage you to come back for Track B sessions, spend some time exploring measurement on hot topics such as consumer sentiment, the energy revolution, housing affordability, manufacturing, wages, consumer spending, and the debt crisis. Early bird deadline is June 14th. Please visit nave.com slash EMS 2023 for more information and to register.